This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Inna alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa azwajihi wa man wala wa ba'd فإن أصدق الحديث كتاب الله وخير الحديث هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار أيها الإخوة الكرام وأخوات السيدات السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Dear respected brothers and sisters First of all we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to except the standing at Arafat and the fasting for all of those who are fasting and for all the supplications of those who are making supplications. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept that from all of us, forgive us our shortcomings and our sins. Uh, as our brother mentioned, the title of our presentation today is the, the loss of identity and legacy for the Ummah. The style of my lecture today will be simply as if this was a classroom. Therefore, I would ask the brothers and sisters to conduct yourselves in the same way as if you were in a lecture hall and you came here to be presented something by one of your professors and you anticipated to be graded on this. Therefore, perhaps you will have the discipline and the attention which is necessary to absorb the materials. I think it only proper to qualify the title. As for identity, identity generally means that feature or characteristics which distinguishes one person, place or thing from another. Through identity, a person, place, or thing could be loved, made important, remembered, and preserved. Through the loss of identity, or the disfigurement of identity, the same person, place, or thing could be despised, marginalized, forgotten, and eventually made extinct. As for legacy, a legacy is that component of history which is passed on from one generation to another, one person to another, one family to another, which is understood to be a specific responsibility or an inherited mandate. Without the consciousness of legacy, human beings remain aimless, weak, uninspired, vulnerable, and without social empowerment from one generation to another. We are gathered here today as millions of other Muslims are gathered in many places all over the world and as over two million are gathered and standing in the valley of Arafat on the actual day of Hajj. Today is the actual day of Hajj. They are expressing their identity and their commitment to the 
Islamic faith through this great ritual called Hajj. With the hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept their prayers and their supplications. They will move from Arafat. In fact, they are moving from Arafat to Muzdalifah as we speak. And tomorrow, when we are celebrating our Eid al-Adha, they will be performing Tawaf, Sa'i. They will become Muqassireen and Muhalliqeen. And then after that, they will make their own Udhiyah. They will continue their rituals for three more days by performing the Jamra in Mina before returning one final time to the sacred masjid for their farewell tawaf. Now all of these rituals, theirs and ours, are a commemoration to the sacrifice and the commitment of our common father, Ibrahim salam, and to the traditions given to us by our beloved prophet and teacher Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. On this day we must remember the oath of Ibrahim salam, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where he said, "Audhu billahi min ash-shaitan rajim inna salati wa nusuki wa mahiyahiya wa mamati lillahi rabbil alameen la sharika allahu wa bithalika umirtu wa ana awwal al-muslimin It's important for us to understand this oath which Ibrahim salam, he made because in this oath we have the legacy and we have the identity Think of those words. First he said, Verily my prayer, meaning supplications and other works of ibadah. And then he said, Nusuki, that means from the word nasaka, or sacrifice, efforts and struggle. And then he said, Mahyaya, the life which I have been given. And then he said, Mamati, the death which has been decreed for me. Then he stated that no partners, no comparisons or compromises has he made for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he says, Wabidalika umirtu. I have been commanded this, and I have no option and no choice. Wa ana awal al-Muslimin. And I am the first and the foremost of those who bow and submit myself in Islam. In these words, our father Ibrahim salam, summed up the real meaning of identity and legacy. However, when these words were spoken by Ibrahim salam, and repeated by the Messenger of Allah salam, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought the wahi to him, and when it was also recited by the early Muslims, they were not confined, that is, their speech and what they meant by it was not confined to the rituals that is a part of our deen. Not like the rituals that we are performing today or the rituals that are being performed today by the people who are on Arafat or the rituals that we do in other times of the year. No, that is not the sacrifice or the prayer or the ibadah which they meant. These words are inclusive words and they are comprehensive words. They are dynamic words of struggle and commitment that supersede symbolic gestures and religious rituals that occur at certain times and intervals. 
They are words of a special declaration. They declare that I am a Muslim. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in the Quran, وَسَمَاءُكُمُ muslimin," And we named you as Muslims, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned. They are words that include the inner and the outer manifestations of worship. They are words that require the commitment to one, the Islamic message, two, the Islamic brotherhood, three, the Islamic movement, four, Islamic revival, Islamic reformation, and inevitably it requires the establishment of the deen in every other aspect, including Islamic government. This is our identity, and this is our legacy, which has become lost and obscured by the observance of ethnic and social traditions. We are all Muslims, very proud to say we're Muslims. We say there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, we like to say that, like 1.6 billion wet matches. like 1.6 billion tons of rotten food or 1.6 billion gallons of polluted water. What can you do with it? Absolutely nothing unless you recycle it. That is the condition of the Muslims today because we are satisfied, we are preoccupied with the performance of outer rituals. If we grow our beard, if we put on a hijab, if we wear a thobe, if my name is Muhammad, if I go to the Eid, if I, make, if I go to Jum'ah, if I read the Quran, if I go to the mosque, if I eat halal food, I'm satisfied, I'm a Muslim. So where is the Islam? If you owned an orchard of a thousand trees and the trees bore no fruit, what pride would you have and what would you have to sell? Absolutely nothing. And this is the condition of the Muslims today because we are satisfied that my father was a Muslim or I am a Muslim. I read the Quran. I'm Salafi. I'm Hanafi. I'm Hanbali. I'm Shafi'i. I'm Sufi. I'm this, I'm that. I'm from this place. I'm from that place. And that's the first thing we always ask each other. Brother, where are you from? Sister, where are you from? We should say to each other, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. Brother, what mosque do you belong to? As if the mosque masjids, as if we belong to masjids. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna al-masajida lillah. That the masjids belong to Allah. So how the Muslims belong to a masjid? Now we want to be identified by this and that. And we seek that our legacy is really the legacy of our fathers and mothers and the tribes and the countries that we come from. This is our legacy. And that's why brothers from Pakistan or India or Saudi Arabia or Malaysia or whatever, their families never want them to marry anybody except from their own tribe or their own group. Because inside themselves, they are still Jahiliya people. And the sisters who are from those same countries. Their families would rather the sisters to be 
40-year-old virgins than to marry somebody outside of their ethnicity. They would rather to see their daughters doing what you saw on the television, the girl Yasmin, the television program. You all saw it, I think. They'd rather to see their daughters coming out of their houses with hijabah going around the corner, putting on high heels, combing their hair, putting on a lipstick, smoking cigarettes, and going and drinking some beer in a pub with a kaffir. They don't mind as long as the daughter doesn't bring the shame back home. Because we have lost our identity and we have lost our legacy. We are steeped in the outer frills of Islam. These days, we will go through great expense to dress, to celebrate, to make an outward show of our religion. I'm sure most of the Muslims today have already purchased, pressed, dodged, set aside their Eid costumes, because that's all they are. The Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he didn't have a special Eid costume. He didn't have a special costume for his family. And you will find the Muslims who pray the least, who fast the least, who recite the least amount of Quran, and who practice the least amount of Islam, they will make the biggest show for the Eid. This is because the religion has become an outer shell. Let us listen for one moment at what some scholars they said about the Islamic message. He said that the Islamic message is a popular message based mainly upon self-motivation and personal conviction. It is a message performed out of faith for nothing other than for the sake and the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the hope of being rewarded by him and not by human beings. The core of this message, the core of this self-motivation, is that unrest, that uneasiness, which a Muslim feels when the awakening visits him or her, and they feel a turmoil deep inside of them. And as a result of that, they feel the contradiction between faith on one hand and the actual state of affairs of his nation or his family or himself on the other. And what happens at that point? A new Muslim is born. And I say to you brothers and sisters that today the Islamic movement, the Islamic vitality is in the hands of newly practicing Muslims and in the hands of new Muslims newly practicing Muslims, those who were born into Islam but discovered Islam just recently. And new Muslims who were in the Jahiliyyah, you used to pass by them in the street, you used to see them in the pubs and the clubs, you used to see them as kafirs. And today they are standing next to you and they are praying and reading Quran and they have adopted Islam. The vitality of Islam is in their hands. Certainly there are some of the older Muslims, the traditional Muslims, that are good Muslims, necessary Muslims, sincere Muslims. But for the most part, they have become like 
dry straw. No substance in them whatsoever except the appearance and the insistence upon rituals. And what about Islamic Brotherhood? What is it and where can we find it? Allah Azza wa Jal, He said, إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِخْوَةً فَاسْلِهُ بَيْنَ أَخْوَيْكُمْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He said, Verily, the relationship between the believers is that of brotherhood. So, make reconciliation between your brothers and sisters who have differences. And fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in order that you might arrive or receive mercy. In a very famous hadith al-Qudasi, which means those ahadith or those words that were received by the Prophet ﷺ through Jibreel ﷺ as a wahi from his Lord. But Jibreel ﷺ said to the Prophet ﷺ, this is not for the Qur'an. It's called Hadith Al-Qudasi. In one of those, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, أَيْنَ الْمُتَحَابُونَ بِجَلَالِ Who are those who used to love each other for my sake? On this day, I will give them my shade on a day in which there will be no shade except my shade. He's speaking subhanahu wa ta'ala about the day of judgment. So where are those who used to love and trust each other for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Who used to sacrifice, share, and stand together for strength, dignity, and honor? It's a very rare thing to find Muslims of different ethnic groups living together, sharing together. Not just praying together five minutes and leaving that place, but wanting to live together, share together, buy together, sit together, defend each other, honor each other, protect each other. And they want to build their lives in such a way that a brother comes to another brother. A Pakistani brother comes to an African brother and says, Akhi, my sister is single and I love you for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I want to bring you home and meet my family. Perhaps you will marry my sister. Most of you are probably taking a deep breath. <sighs> and your families were taking even deeper breath. How in the world could you bring home this dirty black guy? Oh, I know he's Muslim, but he's not the same. He's not Pakistani. He's not Bangladeshi. He's not Indian. Or he's not Arab. He doesn't speak Arabic. He's a new Muslim. He came from the street. How dare you bring him to our house and offer him our daughter? Yes, but many of those same daughters, they are already hooked up with guys like that who are not Muslims. I know because I receive more than a hundred emails a week 
sisters from all over the world where I have lectured, asking me to please reconcile a situation that they have fell into. That they don't want to tell their mothers and fathers, that they don't want to tell their families about. And I wonder to myself, how could a Muslim sister in the house of her father and mother and brothers and sisters, how could she have an illicit relationship with a Kafir and they don't know? You say, not my sister. Maybe not. Maybe not yet. And what about the young brothers? Did you know that here in the UK, at any given time, there are 118,000 brothers and sisters who are of the age of marriage? 118,000. Who will not get married in the next six years, yet they are available for marriage? Tell me what the problem is. Everybody's got cell phones. Everybody got Yahoo. So communication is not the problem. If you don't communicate through the wali or the wakil or your mother or your father or in the right ways, you brothers and sisters know you are communicating. So why are you not getting married? The brothers are not getting married because the brothers are not prepared for marriage. They're mommy's boys. They're being taken care of by their mommies. And they're looking for another mommy to take care of them. And the sisters who live in the West, they don't want any mommy's boys. They want a man to be able to take care of them. And unfortunately, most of the brothers that are in this room, if not every single brother that's in this room that is not married, is able to marry. But he's irresponsible. He hasn't taken the commitment of marriage. And his excuse is, I want to finish my education. And after he finishes the education, I have to earn enough money. And after he earns enough money, he doesn't want that sister in that hijab. That's not the one he wants. What is the excuse of the sisters? They have a different excuse. They're blocked by their families. Their families would rather them to stay home and make chapati than for the sister to get married. Unless she marries who they want her to marry. Although the mother and the father have lived together, had their marriage, had their children, had their enjoyment. So why they want to block the daughter? And why they want to choose for the daughter? She knows. If she in the West watching television, she's in the West reading magazines, riding trains, she knows what she wants. But this is the problem of our ethnic and our traditional Islam. Where is the Islamic Brotherhood? Brothers who stand for each other. Brothers who protect each other. Brothers who live for each other. Brothers who work with each other. Brothers who follow leadership together. Where is it? Dear brothers and sisters, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask you and I this question. Where are those 
And what about the Islamic movement? The Islamic movement to revive and reform our society. Now today in the Muslim countries and in most Muslim organizations in the non-Muslim countries, we cannot even mention the words Islamic movement. There are 37 Muslim countries in the world, approximately. In 34 of those countries, you cannot constitutionally mention the word Islamic movement. You cannot speak publicly the word Islamic revival. To say Islamic movement, to say Islamic revival is to be an extremist. To be classified a criminal is to be subversive and to wind up in jail. In the Muslim countries, and because Muslims have migrated out of the Muslim countries with that phobia, with that mentality. When they arrive in the non-Muslim country, they also have the same phobia. We pray, we read Quran, we read hadith of the Prophet We do all the rituals, but we never talk about Islamic movement, we never talk about Islamic revival, and we never talk about the reformation of the Islamic society or using Islam to reform the society where we live. It is considered to be a criminal statement, a statement of subversion, and to some a statement of de deviance from the Islamic Aqidah. Can you believe that? Muslim scholars teaching Muslim students of knowledge, stay away from those people who use the words Islamic movement, Islamic revival, and Islamic reform because they are deviants from the Islamic Aqidah. In most of the universities where Islamic sciences are taught and the circles where students of knowledge gather, the words revival and the words reform pertain only to polemics and personal behavior. Polemics, that is verbal discussions, dialectical discussions, and personal behavior. When we talk about revival, reform, it only means reform yourself. Revive yourself. Get yourself involved with Islamic knowledge. That's it. It means nothing more. Because in the circles where it is taught, in the universities where it is taught, the government makes sure that that is the only meaning that it can have. Because if those scholars and those students of knowledge were to take that meaning in its comprehensive sense, it would uproot and change those governments. And those governments will never spend money to uproot and remove and change itself. No one can dare speak or engage in issues related to the actual society and the structure. In Pakistan, in India, in Bangladesh, in Saudi Arabia, in Sudan, in Somalia, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Algeria, go across the globe, you cannot speak 
publicly about issues relative to government. You cannot speak about issues relative to the change of the society to bring it into accordance with the Islamic Aqidah or into accordance with the Islamic movement. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He said for us, In Surah At-Tawbah, the 105th verse, what means in the English, he, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, work, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger and the believers, they will see your work. By Islamic movement, we mean that organized collective work undertaken by people to restore Islam to the leadership of the society. I said again, to restore Islam to the leadership of the society, not to place Islam inside the darkness of the mosques or the confinement of the mosque, but to move it outside of the mosque and to place it where it needs to be in the leadership of the society. Now, I don't want any of you to think that before I got here, I ran into some brothers from the Hizb al-Tahrir. I'm not part of no Hizb. This is a component of Islam. And no Hizb or no group has any commodity, has any ownership of Islam. When they say something that is right, we say it is right. But it doesn't mean that we are with their complete agenda. In that issue, they are right. Islam has to arrive at a point where it is represented in the leadership of the society and inevitably, Islam has to be engineered, navigated until it arrives at a point of respect. It arrives at a point where it is eyeball to eyeball with its opposition. And it arrives at a point where through its dynamism, it arrives inevitably in a position. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, huwa alladhi arsala rasoolahu bilhuda wa deen al-haq liyudhirahu ala deeni kulli wa law kariha al-kafirun. This deen is not meant to stay on the bottom, to stay in the back, to be hidden. It is not meant to be in the chest or the mind or the books this deen is meant to come out, to be placed. It is meant to confront, not to agitate, not to undermine, not to subvert, but to challenge everyone to excellence. And we have a right as Muslims to say that Islam is a better way. Islam is not a better way for Arabs. It's not a better way for Asians. It's not a better way for Afro-Caribbeans or Afro-Americans. Or it's not a better way for Europeans or Americans. It's a better way for the entire humanity. We have a right to say that. But it is on us to prove it. You cannot prove that Islam is a better way by simply bringing people to the mosque and say, look how we pray. You must show those that are in government that Islam is able to govern. You must show those, the judiciary, that Islam is able 
to make ahkam. You must show those that are in the academic circles that Islam has the highest basis and regard for science. You must show those who are in the social service field that Islam has the answer to all the human problems. You must show those who are engaged in economy and finance that Islam has a way to enrich its people without riba. You must show those who are in the field of agriculture that Islam has a way to use the wealth of the earth in order to feed all the peoples of the earth. There's no need for there to be poverty in the earth because the earth is producing everything which it needs. But it is greedy people who are taking what other people need for themselves and then forcing them to borrow money to give back to them what is their own right and then after that charging them riba on top of that to enslave them. Islam has an answer for every component of the human drama. But Muslims, we have lost our identity and we have lost our legacy. The Prophet said, I enjoin upon you five things. One, collective life. It means al-jama'ah. This is from the speech of the Prophet He says, I enjoin upon you five things. One, jama'ah. Now here jama'ah doesn't mean going to the mosque and praying Fajr or going to the mosque and praying Salatul Isha. That is jama'ah salah. No, jama'ah means hearing and obeying behind an amir. This is what it means. Jama'ah means belonging to the collective body of the Muslims locally, regionally, nationally, internationally, and seeking to hear and obey and to be under discipline. This is jama'ah. Secondly, sam'a wa ta'a. Hearing and obeying, that means being under discipline. That means being accountable. If you are not accountable to anyone, then you are a renegade Muslim. And we don't mean accountable to your mothers and fathers because any one of you who reach the age of puberty, this is not what it means. When you reach the age of puberty, you should be under the discipline of some Amir. Ibn Abbas radiallahu an said, if Allah, if the Prophet said, if there are three of you on a journey, choose one as an Amir. For something that simple, what about society? What about organization? And what about government? There should be no Amir? No. We want to say only when we're on a journey because that's the only time we want to obey. None of us want to be under accountability and responsibility because then the Amir takes a portion of your decision making. There are certain things you're not going to be able to say, no, I don't want to. Certain things you're not going to be able to do. You can't just get up and say, I'm sorry, Sheikh, I have to get up, I have to go. You're not going to be able to say that. Secondly, the Amir is going to ask you, brother, where do you work? Sister, where do you work? What is the income from your household? Take 5% or 10% and bring that to the community for the support of the community establishment. But you want to hide. You want to keep your plastic cards to yourself. 
You want to keep your money to yourself. You want to keep your business to yourself. You want to keep your family to yourself. You want to keep your affairs to yourself. So you wind up as we are individual Muslims. What? 1.6 billion wet matches. He said, collective life, jama'ah, listening and obeying, sam'awatah, and hijrah. And since the Prophet said there's no hijrah after the conquest of Mecca, Ibn Abbas said that that hijrah means leaving from the ignorance to Islam. And it meant leaving from the haram to the halal. It meant leaving from the place of the kafirs to the place of the Muslims. And for those of us who are living in this country and we say, or America or the Western Hemisphere or any other Kafir country, and we say there's a reason for us to live here, minimally, if we are to live here with legitimacy, with, uh, with, uh, to be legitimate, we must leave from the auspices of the Kafir administration and place ourselves under the Islamic administration. What does that mean? It means that you go on your job, you work where you work, you go to your institutions, you go to school, you do whatever you do in your outward life as a citizen of this country, and you fulfill the duties of that citizenship. But you assign yourselves to the discipline and the accountability of a Muslim leader. The Prophet said, Striving in the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the fifth. The word striving here is juhd, jahada, jihad. Not just kitad, not just going, finding a battlefield, not just wanting to die, not just wanting to kill somebody, no, but taking your wealth and your person your energy and your commitment and striving in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a manner which is required according to sincerity. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi said, He who secedes from the jama'ah as much as a hand span has cast off the rope of Islam from their neck until they return back to the fold. Here it means, it doesn't mean the jama'ah where you pray at. That's not what it means. Some brothers, they think that if you belong to some group of brothers under some student of knowledge and you leave from them, uh, the brothers say, Akhi, you went into the jahiliyyah. No, this is not what it means. The jama'ah here is a jama'ah of the Quran and the sunnah. And the jama'ah of the Quran and the sunnah, it doesn't simply mean the Quran and the sunnah in the book form. The jama'ah of the Quran and the sunnah following the orders of the Prophet ﷺ and the understanding and the applications of the three generations. Whosoever leads from that have thrown off Islam from their neck. That means leaving the discipline of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Leaving the ahkam, the hukum of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And he who summons to what pre-Islamic people followed, 
meaning their culture and their traditions, belongs to the assemblies of the hellfire. I'll read that again. He who summons to what the pre-Islamic people followed, that is their culture and their traditions, belongs to the assemblies of hell. Even if he fasts, performs salah, and asserts that he or she is a Muslim. Umar radiallahu an, the second Khalifa of Islam, he said, There is no Islam without Jama'ah. And there is no Jama'ah without leadership, Imara. And there is no leadership without obedience. Subhanallah. So Umar ibn Khattab, who was a companion of the Prophet ﷺ and one of the Khulafa al-Rashidin, and the Prophet ﷺ said, Alaykum bi sunnati wa sunnatu al-Khulafa al-Rashidin al-Mahdiyin. Upon you is the following of my sunnah, and also the sunnah of the Khulafa al-Rashidin al-Mahdiyin, the rightly guided people. So look what Umar said. This was his understanding. He said, there is no Islam. Mean all the rituals you want to perform. No Islam without jama'ah. Jama'ah means what? Disciplined accountability under an Amir following the Quran and the Sunnah in its regulations and in its judgments. And he says, and there is no Jama'ah unless there is Imara. An Amir. Here he could have said, an Imam. But is Imam is necessary for the prayer. But the Amir is necessary for authority. Obviously, you brothers and sisters know that the Imam inside the mosque has no authority over you. You know that. Because after the khutbah on Jummah, and tomorrow after the khutbah of the Eid, after the Imam says, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Thirteen times. Seven in the first rakah, six in the next rakah, after he does that. Then he gets ready to stand over to the side and give the lecture. What will the Muslims do then? The children will get up to go get their toys. The ladies will get up to show their clothes. The brothers will get up and start bobbing and weaving and talking. And they will be competing with the imam who's giving the khutbah. And they won't listen to him. They will start buying and selling and eating and enjoying themselves because after all, I mean, come on, Imam, don't keep talking, man. This is Eid. Although this khutbah is the khutbah of the Prophet ﷺ, he's standing in the same place as the Prophet ﷺ, as the Khulafa al-Rashidin, and as the Sahaba and Tabi'in, Atba Tabi'in, he's standing in the same place doing the same thing. Do you think that when the Prophet ﷺ finished leading the prayers and he stood up to talk to the people, they would act like that? Do you think they would act like that in the time of Umar Do you think they would act like that in the time of uh, the other Khulafa, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz? No! Because we today are a different people. We are an ungrateful people. We are an undisciplined people. We are a renegade people. And we only show lip service to the Imam. As long as he do what we like, we say, Imam Saab, 
Alhamdulillah. But if he orders us something, if he tells everybody, sit down. All of you sit down. Somebody will stand up and say, who are you talking to? Well, who do you think you are? You're just an imam here. We pay you. We can replace you. Because these are the kinds of people we are. Oh, Muslims. He said there's no leadership without obedience. That means that we don't have any leaders if we are not obedient to them. One of our scholars, local scholars here, his name is Sheikh Suhaib Hassan. Most of you know him. He is the president or the chairman of the Sharia Council. You heard of that, right? This Sharia Council is supposed to solve all the issues of Sharia for us. All the issues of Sharia. But do you know that 90% of his time and the time of the seven or eight scholars who sit on that Sharia Council, do you know what they are engaged in doing? 90% of their time has to do with issues relative to divorce. They are receiving 150 or 200 cases of divorce every week. So they can't even deal with any other issues. He told me that himself, mashallah. So the Sharia Council can't deal with any other issues because of the issues relative to divorce. And that's why we Muslims are in our condition. Dear Muslim brothers and sisters, when we mention Islamic revival, there's a specific meaning that we want to use here when we say Islamic revival. And let me read to you something here before we conclude. The Islamic movement has come into existence in order to revive Islam and to reinstate it at the helm of life once again after removing the obstacles from its path. Did you hear that? The Islamic movement has come to revive Islam and to take it back to its position once it has removed the obstacles from its path. The revival of Islam is not an expression of mine. It was used by the Prophet ﷺ in a sound hadith narrated by Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. Abu Hurairah said that the Prophet said, Allah shall send down a man who will revive the religion of this nation at the start of every 100 years. That means at the beginning of every century of Islam, Allah will send someone. Now, the scholars who have the right to have ikhtilaf among them, based upon their own research and determinations, some of them said, yes, this is a man. Every 100 years, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will place inside of some man something that is visible, something that is profound, something that the people will motivate towards, something that the people themselves will be able to see very clear, and they will call him the reviver of Islam. Others said, no, it is not a person. They said, it is a number of persons who are acting in collaboration. Allah, he knows the best, but I'm of the opinion of the second. That in every 100 years, every century of Islam, 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspires, He empowers a number of individuals who collaborate, who create an atmosphere of dynamism to bring Islam back to its position. And I believe that this is happening right in our faces. Islam is being revived in spite of the war on what they call terror or fundamentalism or whatever they want to call it. It is not a war on fundamentalism. It is not a war on terror. It is not a war on extremism. It is a war against Islamic revival. Because the signs of Islamic revival are very clear for those who have read the history. When Islam comes back, it comes back in the way it was in the beginning, said the Prophet Dear brothers and sisters, our identity and our legacy includes and inevitably leads to the establishment of the legitimate and genuine Islamic government with its Khilafah. And those of you who are afraid to say that, you need to ask yourself, what kind of Muslim am I? That we have to whisper to each other that Islam is a government. And that we have to whisper to each other that the Islamic government is chaired and led by a Khilafah, that is a world global authority. We don't have to belong to any Hizb. We don't have to read many books. We don't have to march in the streets. It has already been documented for us and the Kafirs know it better than we do. And that's why they work harder than we do to keep it from coming back. But it will come back. Finally, my brothers and sisters, our identity and our legacy can be preserved and it can be reclaimed through a clear commitment to da'wah. And I do not want to underestimate or trivialize this issue of da'wah. When we speak about da'wah, we're speaking about da'wah in the contemporary world. We're not talking about da'wah as it was. We're talking about da'wah as it is. And we're not talking about the world as it used to be. We're not romanticists. We're not steeped in nostalgia. We are realists. We are Islamic idealists. We are people who believe that the Islamic ideal and the Islamic message is real and alive. And we believe that the Islamic Dawah is more powerful and more relevant and more sophisticated than Bluetooth. It works the same way. Those of you who have the facility, the component of Dawah inside of you, you can turn on your Dawah element and you can search for a pairing device. You can stand in front of another human being, whomsoever they are, and you can pair your device up with theirs. And once you see you got a signal, you can deliver the dawah. 
And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you something that you need to know. There is nothing in the hearts and minds that can stop da'wah. Nothing except ignorance and corruption. Shirk and fawahish. If the person's mind is cleared of misconceptions and distortions, if the person's mind and heart is cleared of the obstructions of ignorance and fawahish and corruption, you can pair up your device. Your heart and your mind can be paired up. And you can deliver the dawah as Allah has ordered it, just like Bluetooth, and you can send that message straight forward in any place where there is a device. It works just like that. But you have to know it. The problem with you is that you have the equipment inside of you, but you're never using it. Oh, Muslims, one of the most important and dynamic components of the Muslim social interaction with other human beings and unfortunately for us living in the Western Hemisphere it is the duty and the mandate of delivering the Dawah I say one of the most important because brothers and sisters the war on Islam is not really the war with tanks and planes and bombs and soldiers that is not real, where the real war. The real war of Islam is the war of words. The war of ideas. The war of images and graphics. Through the words, through the ideas, and through the images, they change our minds. They change our hearts. They occupy our minds and hearts, especially our children. And our hearts and our minds become the dumping ground of their da'wah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to us the capacity to move minds, to penetrate minds and hearts with the da'wah. Da'wah is the special tool that is able to circumvent, bypass, and penetrate the most difficult obstacles and challenges. Through the da'wah, Many confrontations and prospective provocative situations can be avoided and modified. Most of the young brothers who want to march in the streets, who want to talk Dawa talk, I mean who want to talk jihad talk, they want to, they want to hold up signs, death to America, death to Great Britain, Islamic State, blah, blah, blah. They want to march through the streets shouting together, walking down the streets with George Galloway, the new communists, the neoconservative, the, the homosexuals, the lesbians, the perverts, anybody. Just, just stop the war. Stop the war coalition. Who stopped the war? Who is the stop the war coalition? I'll tell you who they are. The top of them are the new communists, the perverts, the homosexuals. Those whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls the godless. They are the real organizers. They are the ones who control the resources. But because they know they can't really do it without us. Because they're saying stop the war in our country. So how are they going to do it without us? So they call some of us to be with them. But you go check 
the Stop the War Coalition and see who's in charge. They are the godless people, the pervert people. That's who they are. And even if they are pious mushriks, we can't follow them. The Prophet وسلم, never marched with them. He never sat with them except to give them dawah. He never invited them into his council meetings and he never sat with them in their council meetings and he never sought to collaborate with them in order to remove the oppression of Muslims. What kind of foolishness are we engaged in? Oh Muslims, you think about it for a moment. Who are you following? Whose flag are you following? What platform are you standing on? You're getting yourself set up. Dawah is a vehicle that delivers the message and the essence of Islam via an imperceptible energy force. The Dawah is something that is imperceptible. You can't see it. It's just like gas. You know, if you go home, you go to sleep and you leave the gas on, you and the whole family probably going to die. You know that, right? Because you, you can't smell it until it has overcome you. Dawa is that way. Dawa is like a laser. Dawa goes in the heart. Dawa goes in the mind. Dawa changes human beings. We are able to capture human beings and their families with Dawa. Because when a person accepts Islam, what has happened to them? They then become enraptured. They become inspired. They become enthralled. They become moved with Islam. Their life changes. And if it's a woman, she goes home and says to her husband, I'm a Muslim. Would you like to be a Muslim? If you don't, I have to give you three months. And if it's a man, he goes home to his wife and says, I'm a Muslim. And I would like you and the children also to be Muslim. Or they go to their parents. Or they go to their colleagues, or they go to their co-workers, or they go to this and that. How? Because this dawah has affected their minds and hearts. Dawah is a vehicle that delivers the message and the essence of Islam via an imperceptible energy. Dawah illuminates the character of the one who delivers it. And it inspires the hearts and the minds of those that receive it. We can literally... Change the world through dawah. You say to yourself, Shaykh, that sounds like a dream. Well, let me tell you the fruits of that dream. Today, unfortunately, most Muslims are unable to give dawah because they have low self-esteem or they have a low estimation of the prospect of Islam. And you know a salesman, if a salesman is not convinced about their product, he can't really convince anybody else. But when a salesman is convinced that he has the best or she has the best product, how do they talk? They talk with conviction, with inspiration. They make you believe that you need to buy something that you don't even need. Because they themselves feel that you need it. In the Western Hemisphere, where we live, before September 11th, before the so-called war on terror,
before the so-called war on fanaticism or fundamentalism or extremism or whatever they want to call it, before September 11th, approximately 13 million people, on 13,000 people, were accepting Islam in the UK every year. And in America, approximately 45,000. So before September 11th, approximately 58,000 people were accepting Islam before the war on terror or fundamentalism or extremism or whatever they want to call it. After September 11th until today, let me give you the statistic. Last year in the UK, 27,000 people accepted Islam in the UK. Last year in America, in the United States of America, in North America, that is United States and Canada, 79,000 people accepted Islam. Now those of you who are mathematicians, you add that up, 79 and 27. I mean, when I went to school, that was 106,000. I don't know what it is today. hundred and six thousand people accepted Islam last year almost double the number since they initiated the war on terror or the war on fundamentalism or the war on extremism or whatever they call it a war on Islam they should come to know that when you agitate Islam, when you agitate it, you're agitating the D-bomb. It is not a chemical bomb. We're not terrorists to blow up no buildings. We're not terrorists to take no, no hostages. We're not terrorists to take no airplanes, to kill no innocent people. That's not what we do. No! But in our hearts, there is the ingredient of the D-bomb. What bomb is that? It is the D-A-W-A-H bomb. The Dawah bomb. It has already exploded and the fallout is all over the world. And I guarantee you brothers and sisters, Sheikh Khalid Yassin or brother Khalid Yassin or Khalid Yassin or Fulan Fulan or Ibn Nutfa. He will be gone. But 20 years from now, that number would have tripled. There will be 250,000 or 300,000 people a year coming into Islam just like that. And I pray that some of you are living, and maybe your sons would have given dower to the granddaughter of George Bush or the granddaughter of the Queen and married one of them. It's halal. We can marry whosoever accepts Islam. And Islam will become appealing, revealing, powerful. And people will begin to embrace it from the upper class, the intelligentsia, as it is happening in America today and happening in this country today. The sons and daughters of judges, parliamentary leaders, 
Supreme Court judges, senators, congressmen, mayors, governors, sons and daughters of engineers, doctors, lawyers, accepting Islam today. Even though Muslims are being scattered and shattered and splattered everywhere. Because Allah has his plan and they have their plan. And Allah is the best of planners. Oh Muslims, do not underestimate what Allah has in store for you and me. Oh Muslims, go out and reclaim your identity. Go out and reclaim your legacy. Because we are weak and in the condition that we are in because we have lost our identity and our legacy. Wallahu a'lam. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. The brother's question was uh, that, uh, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, brother, that uh, in the local mosque we are always uh, trying to uh, raise money to uh, increase the, uh, well, the beauty or the facility of the mosque and also to remind brothers and sisters how to perfect their wudu and to perfect their salah and, and that we should do that, but uh, that he mentioned that I touched upon the need for us to be able to deal with the inner and the outer. Uh, and that the outer dimensions of Islam uh, perhaps are even more dynamic uh, than the inner dynamics because they are meant basically to, uh, the inner dynamics are meant to support the outer dynamics. So we are, uh, we are basically satisfied with basically keep, we keep on going over and over and over the inner dynamics, then what happens is that we never get to the outer dynamics. And so uh, he mentioned that it seems like one of the impediments is that perhaps some of the people who are the um, the staff or the elder generation or the more traditional people in the mosque that uh, how do we kind of like cross that gap? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, one is good behavior. Keep this in mind, brother. Although some of these older guys or older people are sometimes um, unyielding, you know, they're just stuck in this traditional thinking, you know, because the old country is what they remember and when they got here, they just trying to keep a part of the old country going. Because that's what they understand. Because they came here. And their thought was to keep Islam alive, build a mosque, so my children would have a mosque. That's what they're thinking. We can't blame them for that thinking. Because they were successful in that thinking. Because those mosques are there, isn't it? Isn't it? How many mosques have you went to or I went to? in London. And you know, London probably, it may as have as many mosques as Bangladesh. You know how many mosques there are in London? But I'll tell you something. Try to find a mosque that was built by a group of young guys. Try to find one. I mean a group of young students. Or try to find a mosque where a, 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 some students from Islamic University came back to London and they got together and they built a mosque. Is there one? I'm asking. Is there a mosque that's built in London from the ground? Or not a purpose built or even a mosque that has been restored or a building that has been renovated, rehabilitated by a group of brothers that came back from the university, uh, Islamic University someplace? Very few. 
And I say this, the reason is, brother, is that it takes a different level of commitment. The people who built mosques here, or set up mosques here, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years ago, they were people who were working on the docks. People who were working in the factories. They were not educated people. They were people who had traditional commitment to Islam from their countries. And they did their part. And they gave birth to you and I. Well, at least to you. And they sustained you, put you through college, university, and kept a place for you to come. And then, some of us, we got a little bit more knowledge. We learned how to say, well, Darlene, instead of Zarlene. We learned the word Aqidah. We learned the word Manhaj. We learned the word Quran and Sunnah. We got a little knowledge, a little sophistication, and all of a sudden, our grandfathers and our uncles, all of a sudden, they became like, come on, man, what's up? You guys ain't doing nothing. You guys ain't really, you ain't on it. No, in reality, show them good manners. Go to those mosques, pray in those mosques, clean those mosques. Do service in those mosques. If young men, if 10 or 15 young men came to the mosque every week and they swept the sidewalks and cleaned the toilets and hoovered and washed the rugs and cleaned upstairs and downstairs and washed the windows and took the curtains down and took them to the washerette and brought them back and served those older people, what would the older people say? These are some good guys. These are some good young men. What else you young guys want to do? But the young men don't do that. So you got to serve those older people. That's what I believe. Serve them. Be patient with them. And if you can't do in the mosque what you want to do, then pray in the mosque as they allow you to. Read Quran in the mosque as they allow you to. Do what they allow you to do in the mosque and then get your own spot and do what else you, what else you want to do. And then after that, don't do it separately continue to serve those older people so there's no generation gap. So you keep serving the older people, but whatever you can't do with them, you do it in another place. But when you do it in another place, bring that resource, make it available to those older people because invariably, tomorrow, on the Eid, what places are we going to pray at? The same traditional mosques, isn't it? Who have paid for the imam's salary and where the imam lives, and have paid for the upkeep of that place. So let's respect them, honor them, collaborate with them. And don't the young men go get some little separate spot and do their thing and leave the old people over there because now you got a big problem. You got young men who don't have no wisdom, don't have any patience, and you got old men who don't have any vision and no energy. So be patient, inshallah. And things will come together, inshallah, if we have the right akhlaq and the right niyyah, inshallah. Next. Okay, let's first understand this issue of bay'ah. I didn't use the word bay'ah purposely. I use the word commitment. I use the word allegiance. I use the word loyalty. I use the word obedience. But I didn't use the word bay'ah because it could be misconstrued. So, although for me, I don't have a problem with the word bay'ah. I have bay'ah. But this issue of bay'ah should be understood that in its, in its broader sense, it is reserved for the khilafah. When there is a khalifa, we give bay'ah. The Muslims give bay'ah to the khalifa in a broader sense. 
because he becomes a global authority. But in a small sense, in a local sense, each one of us should have a loyalty, a commitment, a oath, a contract of hearing and obeying with someone whom we respect to be able to guide us and to act as a mentor for us and to, be, uh, to hold us accountable for our Islamic work. So you have the broader and the minor. Bay'ah, loyalty, commitment, contract, hearing and obeying. And everyone has got to seek it for himself. Read about it. Read from what the, the ulama and the fuqaha said about it. And I suggest all the Muslims, aside from the other things you read, read history and read biography. Read the biography of the, of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. Read the biography of the Prophet ﷺ. Read the biography of the Tabi'in at, 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 at Tabi'in. Read the biography of the Islamic heroes. Because when you read their biographies, you'll see that each one of them, they were plugged in. They were not independent. They were part of a silsila. They could trace their knowledge. They could trace their commitment. They could trace their accountability back to someone. And that's what we need to do. And inshallah, then make niyyah about it. And then that person whom you select, and he doesn't have to be, you know, um, with a white thobe, on, with a white turban on a white horse. There has to be no ideal person. We don't have to wait for the Mahdi to come to do that. It can be a person who is a simple person, but known to be erudite, and also known and recognized to have responsibility and respect and integrity among the Muslims. Then you go to that person and ask them, would they act as a mentor for you? Would they see, act to guide you? Uh, as a person who you can go and ask questions. If he doesn't have the questions, he will get them for you. And each one of us will find that our Islam will become more stabilized when we do that. And Allah, he knows best. Uh, the first thing, as I would suggest, is that minimize what Brother Khalid Yassin said. And maximize what he said that Allah and his messenger وسلم, said, or what the ulama and the fuqaha said, and then use that as a basis for your research. Now when you go into the research, look into the areas that I spoke about, that I identified, because they were not areas that I wrote. I extracted what I had to say from people whom I consider to be people of knowledge, students of knowledge or scholars. I extracted it from them, and I added some points myself. So you use the focal point of, of, of what I had to say, my nasiha, and you study further. You explore further. And then when you find that the source of what was given to you is Islamic, then you make your intent point by point to reassess, re-examine yourself, and then to apply yourself uh, to regaining your personal Islamic identity, restoring your personal Islamic identity, and secondly, um, look into fulfilling your responsibility for maintaining and preserving the legacy of Islam. That's what you can, you can do. And uh, uh, there were four or five different avenues by which I said that we, we have lost our way, and there are four or five avenues by which we can regain our way, inshallah. Uh, sister, uh, the sister who asked that question, that's a very good question. Uh, you have to keep this in mind. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said obedience to your parents, uh, there's no obedience to makhluk when it involves dis disobedience to al-khaliq. The Prophet ordered us to marry. He ordered us to marry. 
And when someone asked him, Ya Rasulullah, when should we marry? He said, Bisura'ah. That means quickly. And quickly means for the girl when she reaches the age of menstruation. That means when she reaches that age, her parents should be preparing her. Now that's in a Muslim country. What about here? And for the young man, when he starts to recognize the signs of puberty, and all young men know when the signs of puberty come. They are external and internal. That's when that young man should prepare themselves to marry. And there's no problem, because the young man can marry a girl and bring, him, bring the girl home to his family. Or the young man can marry and he can move in with her family. They don't have to have their own personal rochinette. A kitchenette, excuse me. They don't have to have, we don't have to make all these conditions upon them. And as the sister just asked, what about if a sister wants to marry someone who is not from her country, but her parents prefer it? Then you need to sit down and talk to your parents about that. Sit down with them. Plead with them. Try to make them see your point, your position. Because if you decided to leave home, as many girls do, run away from home and marry some guy or be with some guy as some girls do, what control would they have over that? Absolutely none. They wouldn't like it. Here, you're not talking about leaving, run away from home. You're talking about you would like to marry somebody who's outside of maybe their village or outside of their particular country or, out, or sometimes outside of their particular persuasion. If you're an adult and you've made your choice of education and you're an adult and you're paying taxes and you're an adult and you've got to stand in front of Allah on a day of judgment, you've got to stand with your parents who are also adults and say to them, what you prefer. I don't say disobey them, but I say you need to argue for yourself. And if they would beat you and not allow you to talk, if you were living in Pakistan or Somalia or Saudi Arabia, well, they can't do it here. So you better take advantage of the fact that you're here and sit down and have a nice long talk with your parents. Because they got hearts and they have minds and you can appeal to them, but it, maybe you can't do it in a day. And at the end of the day, as you guys call it, say here, at the end of the day, is that what you say? At the end of the day, a young guy that wants to marry a girl or a young girl that wants to marry a guy, and even if they don't want to get married, just they want to be together, at the end of the day, they're going to be together. So we need to convince our parents, talk to our parents, not just disobey them, but at the same token, don't feel like you're locked up. Don't feel like you're a prisoner. Don't feel, you understand me, that you're in some kind of a situation like a bottleneck and you just can't get out because it's a figment of your own imagination. If you're in the UK, that's not really the situation. Think about it. Talk about it. Sit with your mother and your father. Bring your uncles and bring your older brothers and all that and let somebody be your sponsor and talk for you. Bring the ayats of Quran. Bring the hadith of the Prophet Do your own research and see if you can come to them and break that wall of culture because that's all it is. And may Allah help you inshallah.
Look, sometimes a practicing sister can make a brother want to practice and vice versa. It all depends upon the chemistry and the Nia which is involved. Of course, if you got a brother, he don't pray, he going to the club, you know, he wearing jewelry around his neck, he acting crazy. I wouldn't want to give my daughter to him or my sister to him till he clean his act up. But then again, if he's a Muslim, would I want my sister to wind up with a kafir? And some of the young sisters, that's what is happening. So I say, sister, inshallah, um, if there's a non-practicing Muslim brother that you got your eyes on or that you're talking to or you're communicating with or whatever, I think what you need to do is bring him and let your practicing Muslim brother or your practicing Muslim father or uncle or if there's some practicing Muslim brothers in the uni where you go to, let them, let them um, prop him up a little bit, pull his socks up. Because every non-practicing, weak Muslim brother or sister can tomorrow become a practicing Muslim brother or sister. I just spoke about the whole thing about the phenomena of newly practicing Muslims. Honestly, brothers and sisters, don't tell no lie. I'm not, because I'm not going to. How many of you is newly practicing Muslims? Come on, come on, it's, come on, don't be bashful. It's all right to be a newly practicing Muslim. Well, I'm a new Muslim, I'm not, I'm not a young Muslim, but I'm a new Muslim. And I happen to know that most of you in this room are newly practicing Muslims. When I say newly practicing, you just started studying issues of Aqidah and understanding what that is. You just came out of that whole cultural phenomena and came to understand what the broad spectrum of Islam is. You just started wanting to pray five times a day. Not that you are praying five times a day. Some of you just start making fajr. Some of you just start praying in Jamaat. Now raise the hand. Some of us is a newly practicing Muslims. Ah, see? See? Yes, most of us. And nothing wrong with that. Because when something is new to you, it's always sweeter to you. New wife, new jewelry, new husband, new children. You know what I mean? Everything that's new is always better. When it gets old to you, that's when you start taking it for granted. You don't use it like you're supposed to use it. So there's nothing wrong with that. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help all the sisters and brothers who have these marital problems. But I don't want to answer too many of the marital questions because then I'll, 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 I'll start to get hung up like the Sharia Council. Okay, I'm not going to answer that because let me just say this to you. There is no such thing as halal music. That's just to understand that part of it. So anybody that's listening to music, I don't care if you want to call them, you call them some kind of uh, contemporary nasheeds or whatever you want to call it. There is no such thing as halal music. Because if it was, the prophet Sam would have been playing it and singing it. But he didn't. So if it's not halal, the best thing it could be is permissible. Maybe. Maybe it is allowable on certain occasions, under certain circumstances, perhaps. But I would say to you, 
it's better for you to leave it alone. Leave it alone, because this new phenomena of listening to music and, and uh, listening to these nasheeds and people singing the Qur'an and, you know, uh, brothers, is, I heard the Qur'an being sung by somebody the other day, astaghfirullah. A person took the Qur'an, ayats of the Qur'an, and put it into a song version for children. The Prophet also never did that. He said, curse, curse of Allah be upon the people that take the Qur'an out of its, its recitation mode and put it into another cultural mode. You want to teach the children Qur'an? You teach them Qur'an. You want to teach them Sunnah? Teach them Sunnah. Then if you want to teach some poetry, Good poetry is good poetry, bad poetry is bad poetry, but leave the drums and the whistles and the banjos and all that stuff alone. Now they got a new phenomenon going on where they have uh, um, clubs that the sisters and brothers can go to. It's non-alcoholic clubs. And they got five or six little nasheed groups in there dancing and spinning around and everything. <laughs> And all the young brothers and sisters, is, the sisters over on the other side with their little hijabs on, and the brothers over on the other side over there, and they all drinking non-toxic drinks, and they singing that sheet back and forth to each other, and got the Bluetooth back and forth. Come on. Why, why, why are we fooling around? Why you don't just go in the club and just everybody just get on the floor and just boogaloo? What's the difference? I mean, if you want to go Jahil, go Jahil with a, with a capital J. But you can't mix up water and oil. It does go in the same car, but not the same place. Either Islam is good enough for you, or if it's not good enough for you. But don't add something else into it as if Islam needs some special spices. I don't believe that the children who are learning these nasheeds and these songs, I don't believe they're going to learn them songs and the Qur'an also. They're going to forget the Qur'an, they're going to learn the songs. And I don't believe they're going to become scholars singing nasheeds. So Allah know best, I don't want to go down that road and I don't want to be no, I don't want to cast no aspersion on nobody. The Prophet said that marriage is half of faith. And seek your fear of Allah for the other half. And here actually it just doesn't mean half. It says, shatrul iman. Huh? Shatr. It means, it means a necessary part that without it, there's hardly any presence of Islam. Marriage brings responsibility. Marriage brings accountability. Marriage brings maturity. Marriage brings a whole nother level of consciousness. And that's why the Prophet wanted us to be married. Because our Islam will show this maturity. It will show that stability. It will show that accountability and that responsibility. And that's what he wanted for us. Uh, these, are, these are guesstimates um, that I've taken from four or five different places. Um, that you can, you, can, you can go to the census here in this country. You can go to the census in the United States. You can go to several other uh, uh, statistics that have been gathered. You can go on Google and you can take different things from there. I've taken from about 14 sources and come up with my figure. Now some would say higher figure and some may say just a little bit lower. What I've done is I've taken the middle figure from the statistics that I've done in my background in sociology. So I deal with statistics. And I'll say to you that my guesstimates are fairly accurate. But you don't have to use them if you don't want to. 
I want to. But I'll say to you that it is fairly accurate that 100,000 people are accepting Islam in the, hem in the Western Hemisphere. And of course, that doesn't even include Australia and uh, other places because that's not really in the Western Hemisphere, although it is quite Western. Just um, last year, we gave 816 shahadas in Australia. So Islam is on the move. And this is without, this is without organized dawah. This is without a dawah institution. This is without much dawah resources. What if we were really had resources, if we were really organized and all of us really made an effort? That's why I give you that statistic so that you will understand that if without really that much effort, this is what's happening, then what would happen if we really made the effort? Uh, the last question is, um, Islam has to be in the leadership. How do we obtain this? Uh, I think the sister is saying that uh, the responsibility of Islam is, should be in the leadership. No, it's not. We do not. This is not an ecclesiastical Islam. We don't have, uh, what do they call it? Um, um, what is it called? Um, a hierarchy? We don't have a hierarchy. There's nobody to blame. The leaders are the leaders. But usually, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to the people a leader that is just like them. So when we blame the leaders, we got to blame ourselves. Because the leaders came from ourselves. If we want to make the leaders better, we should be better followers. That's what I can say to you. And yes, there is a responsibility on leadership, the Prophet said. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will, will drag the leaders uh, on their faces. On the day of judgment, he will drag them on their faces in chains. They will be responsible in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first before anybody else. Yes, that's true. But the same token, brothers and sisters, when there is a deficiency among the ummah or in our organization, don't blame the leaders. Let's blame ourselves. Because they wouldn't be leaders if we didn't choose them. It says, it is 427. Those fasting should open their fast or break their fast. Inshallah, Eid Mubarak. Thank you, brother.